Great news, folks. We've got a live show coming up next Wednesday, April 22nd. That is Earth Day. And in place of some big to-do on a stage somewhere, we're coming to you from the only safe place, our homes. We're doing a crossover live episode between the Energy Gang and the Interchange, and it is free. And we are going to be riffing on the day's events, the week's events, and some non-coronavirus-related news. Sign up today by hitting that link right now in the show notes and come hang out with us on Wednesday, April 22nd. We're also brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has the definitive book for organizations that use energy. It is back for 2020. And last year, 2,000 organizations nationwide downloaded the State of Demand Side Energy Management in North America, which is a book written by C-Power's energy experts. Get your copy today on the State of Demand Side Energy Management at thecpowerway.com slash future and learn more about how C-Power can guide you to energy's future. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I am your co-host and a contributing editor at GTM. Thanks for being here. This week, the ways that dirty energy has controlled the politics of clean energy. We're joined by Dr. Leah Stokes, who has written a new book called Short-Circuiting Policy that details the role of fossil fuel interest groups in weakening environmental policy across the United States. She's focused mostly on utilities, resistant utilities in the electricity sector and the groups that help them fight policy. We'll discuss the history and where we are today. Finally, we'll ask, what next for Bernie supporting climate voters now that Bernie Sanders has left the presidential race? Can Biden capture them? Jigger Shaw is in Bethesda, Maryland. He's co-founder and president of Generate Capital in his son's bedroom. Jigger, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm, uh, you know, surviving in a comfortable home. You look together. You look, uh, your hair is well coiffed. You, <laughs> uh, you, it looks like, you know, fr- from my Zoom call here, you're, you're keeping it together. Is that the case? It is so far. I think if this goes on too much longer, I'm going to have to grow my hair out and sell it for, uh, you know, one of those South Indian women who make wigs <laughs> or whatever. It's like for folks, uh, you know, of cancer. Like you have to have 12 inches. I might get there here. Or or, or uh, art brushes. You can sell it for <laughs> for like paint brushes. But that's that's much smaller hair sizes, right? More you don't need 12 inches. You, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how long this is going to last. <laughs> True. Fair. Fair. That voice you heard is not Catherine Hamilton. Catherine is away this week. She is uh, enjoying spring break at home with her family. In Her Place is our guest co-host and another one of my favorite people in this space, the meritorious, the applaudable, the estimable Dr. Leah Stokes. Hey, Leah, how are you? Oh, thank you for having me on and uh, blowing a lot of smoke up my bottom side, not to swear. (laughs) 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 Leah is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Santa Barbara. Her research includes clean energy policy, public opinion, and voting behavior. You most recently heard her on this show talking about the CNN Climate Town Hall, which now feels like it was done in an alternative universe. Uh, it's It feels like a bizarrely long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Uh, time is no longer linear, I think. It's a loop. Somebody's been posting the uh, that Bill Murray movie. What's it called? Groundhog, Groundhog Day. Day. Of course. Groundhog Day. One of my friends has been posting that endlessly on Instagram because I think she feels like she's in Groundhog Day. 
Well, for several years, you've been working on this book called Short-Circuiting Policy, and you were ready to go on book tour. And then, well, here we are talking in our homes. I see a bookshelf behind you, uh, but you are not on book tour. Uh, Coronavirus made sure of that. Um, So what are you doing to, to celebrate the release of your book then? Well, today, which maybe is not the day that this airs, um, but today I'm doing a big book launch with Bill McKibben and Brad Plumer of the New York Times, and uh, the recording will be posted, so if people want to watch it after the fact, they can. And more than 500 people have signed up, so I feel like I am making lemonade out of the situation. And, uh, you know, I'm giving talks to different universities remotely, and I think I'm going to have an article come out in the Boston Globe about the book. So I'm making the best of the situation, and still trying to get the ideas out there. Cool. Well, I opened it up, and the first thing I saw was the dedication to your book, which I love. Tell us what it says. The book is dedicated to all living beings. May the fossil fuel era end. Short, sweet, powerful. So this book is all about the interests, particularly utility interests, that are shaping policy and limiting, watering down clean energy policy, something that we've talked extensively about on this show over the years. You started research for this book in 2013. Coincidentally, that was the same year that this podcast was born. And so we have been following a lot of the battles that you have outlined in your book. So I wanted to go back to when you really started paying attention to this particular topic. Um, How did research for this book come to be? Yeah, so in 2013, I was uh, in the middle of my PhD at MIT, and I wanted to understand the clean energy industry and uh, the policies that have enabled it. So uh, I decided that what I needed to do was look at the states and study renewable portfolio standards and net metering laws as kind of the key ways that the industry had been catalyzed. And so I started by doing a lot of work in California, interviewing people about the history in California. And shortly thereafter, I decided that I wanted to look at places where these bedrock policies were being attacked and rolled back. And it was an interesting time to be doing that because at that time, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a group of companies allied with right-wing state legislators, they were writing model bills, which are laws that can be introduced in kind of any state legislature and adapted for that state. And their model bills were things like the Electricity Freedom Act, which were aiming to roll back these laws. So I spent the next, uh, I guess, seven years now following the trajectory of attacks on these policies. And uh, unfortunately, in many cases, opponents, namely electric utilities and fossil fuel companies, have proven rather successful. Jigger, you have been involved with a lot of the kind of early policymaking and early efforts to establish net metering in certain states. Get us up to this moment in 2013 when we started seeing a coalition of business interests start to target these promotion policies in a new and different way. What happened? Yeah, I mean, so putting the net metering rules in place was actually pretty straightforward and easy, right? Between 1998 and 2004, mostly, uh, people thought we were just not that interesting to bother with. And uh, this was a relatively easy uh, give to the renewable energy industry. It didn't involve money. It just involved allowing the meter to run backwards. Fast forward to 2013, and clean energy was 
clearly on a trajectory to becoming cost-effective without any subsidies. Um, if you remember, by 2013, the capital markets were working fine, and we were doing 100, 500 megawatt you know, utility-scale solar farms uh, everywhere. We were still maybe at five, six cents a kilowatt hour, but we were on course to meeting the sunshot you know, goals and all the others. And I think there were many, particularly Arizona Public Service, but many others that were quite vocal about the fact that net metering was a subsidy that was too expensive and that Solar City and Sunrun were evil and that they didn't need to be getting these kinds of net metering subsidies. And there was a concerted effort by Alec and others to go after it and reframe the debate and and make it clear that um, that these subsidies were too expensive for for poor people. I mean, you even had uh, Ralph Izzo over at PSE&G say multiple times that we were hurting poor people in New Jersey. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you remember, there was also this Edison Electric Institute report called Disruptive Challenges, which was all about the death spiral and how utilities had woken up. Like Jigar was saying, when these net metering laws were passed, utilities didn't really care very much about them. They didn't think much of them. But uh, fast forward to 2012, utilities started to worry that the more customers were opting out of the system, uh, the fewer kilowatt hours of load they would be serving and the higher the rates would go, which would make it profitable for other customers to opt out. And this was what they termed the death spiral. And I think it freaked a lot of the utilities out and they started to work um, pretty intently across the country to get um, large monthly charges put on net metering customers. So fast forward to today, we have seen an enormous number of local fights, but ultimately the direction has been positive, right? We have a ton of utilities that have been previously resistant who have adopted pretty substantial goals for renewable energy or carbon-free energy targets. We have state policy that is getting more ambitious by the month. And uh, as far as I can tell, we, we ended up in a somewhat positive place. So what has been the result of companies attacking these policies? Could we have been in a better spot? Definitely. I mean, I think for so long, we have benchmarked against the policies that we have on the books. We've said, well, look, these states are claiming they'll do 50% or or 20% or now 100%. And hey, isn't that great? And what the Green New Deal conversation has opened up, at least for me, is a realization that we need to be benchmarking against what's necessary. If we take the IPCC seriously and we say, okay, if we want to be on track to keeping warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, then we need to be cutting emissions by about half by 2030 in the next decade. So a lot of that could come through the electricity sector. Well, if we, um, I have these curves in the book called the narwhal curve, which basically makes these benchmarks. And what I show is across the board, the U.S. is way behind uh, cleaning up the electricity system in the next decade or even the next 15 years. So I don't think it's enough to say, hey, look, we've got these laws on the books in a couple states, namely, you know, California, New York, New Mexico, uh, Washington, Hawaii, a couple others. Uh, We really, A, need a national federal clean electricity standard so that all the states are making progress. And B, we need timetables that are at the scale and scope necessary to take on the climate crisis. One of the things I'm curious about, Leah, is that it. I understand where you're coming from, but I, I wonder whether um, 
you know, you're basically saying that fossil fuel companies and utility companies were stopping progress at scale, or you're really saying that the advocates lacked ambition? Because as someone who is on the other side of that, I don't remember losing that often, right? I mean, we passed almost every RPS that we tried to pass, maybe in the first session we tried, sometimes in the third session that we tried to go after it, but we pretty much got whatever we asked for. So it sounds like, I mean, in from my perspective, what you're saying is we weren't ambitious enough. No, I'm not saying that, although I can understand why you might think I am. Uh, the book talks about the early days of these RPS policies when the first targets were passed with maybe 20% or, you know, things that actually were quite ambitious for that time period in terms of the maturity of the renewable energy industry. Um, but what I what I argue is that that was happening in a period when utilities were not really wise to the consequences of these laws. And I think you spoke about that with net metering. Well, the same holds in a lot of cases for renewable portfolio standards. A lot of utilities were caught off guard in terms of what this would mean um, for their legacy assets, things like coal plants. How economic would they be, for example? So I think that as utilities learned, they stopped being as um, confused about what the consequences of these policies would be. And I think today it's getting harder to expand these laws because when you're attacking these policies, whether that's Coke Industries or um, the Edison Electric Institute and their various utility companies associated with that, what you're doing is you're changing the negotiation. It's no longer about, are we going to get you know, 75% or 100% by this year, it's about can we keep this very basic policy on the books or is that going to go away? You see that really clearly in Kansas where they had a basic RPS and the fight didn't become about can we get to 100% in Kansas, it became about are we going to keep this renewable portfolio standard on the books or are we going to get rid of it? And in the end, they got rid of it in Kansas and they also managed to forego getting a tax on wind energy in that state. So I think utilities have in some places changed the negotiation and made it harder for advocates to be getting these 100% laws on the books. Well, that's certainly the case, but but again, I'm not sure how effective they were, right? Remember when we were talking about the rolling back of net metering, I remember the New York Times published this big piece about how we were going to die, and basically Nevada was the poster child, and you know we got it back, and net metering, it really hasn't been you know, um, affected in ways that are super negative or across the country. In fact, I think they've generally followed the science as we were, and you know, as net metering really did cost the system more, you know, we added some basic surcharges to net metering customers, but that was in line with cost reductions from solar. So the proposition was still good. I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think like 60% of Americans are actually covered by 100% clean energy pledges, whether it's from state policy or utility companies who have announced 100% clean energy by 2050, like in Idaho. And so I feel like on balance, there's always going to be places like Kansas where you know, they just really hate economic development. I mean, they've hated economic development for a long time in Kansas. Remember, Brownback tried to bankrupt the state and to the point where the Republicans in the Senate had to, in the state legislature, had to vote for tax increases because they realized they weren't able, able to provide basic services. So I don't know that I would use that example as like, you know, an analog for what's happening across the country. Well, what's interesting is that uh, if you look at the amount of electricity that's covered by renewable portfolio standards, it's actually only about 50% of the load. This is from research from Galen Barbos um, at um, NREL, I believe. And so it isn't 
the case that a lot of our electricity system is has really ambitious policies and that's just a basic rps that's not 100 rp or 100 rps and if you think about a state like florida it's a really sunny state uh it has so much potential for solar they've managed to uh, utilities in that state have managed to block net metering laws from getting on the books, any kind of RPS policy, including when it was being proposed by right-wing groups, Christian groups, uh, they blocked those policies. And when you think about net metering, um, you know, I have the facts in my book, but there are actions in a majority of states with net metering to try to put fixed fees on it. And yeah, in some cases, the fixed fees don't end up being that large. But if you look at, for example, Arizona, which you brought up with Arizona Public Service and Salt River Project, the fees that they put on initially were small, but they grew to be quite large, especially in SRP and um, Tucson Electric Power territory. And you can see very clearly that when those fixed fees go up, the amount of installations drops fairly precipitously. And the nice thing about SRP and APS is that they actually both have service territories in Phoenix. So they provide pretty good counterfactuals for where, you know, you could be continuing to install it. So, um, you know, especially when you're benchmarking against what is necessary, what we need to be doing is we have about 37% of the electricity system from clean energy sources right now. 20% of the U.S. system is nuclear. So, you know, renewables are not a huge chunk. And of course, a big part of that is, is legacy hydropower. So we're talking about maybe 10, 11% of the U.S. system from renewables. And so if, we're, if we want to get to really high numbers by, let's say, 2035, we have to be moving at such a faster pace. I get into all the numbers in the introduction to my book, but... Yeah, those are actually quite good. Yeah, so the, the scale is really fast. So I take your point that, yes, companies are still making money and they're still moving along, but I'm not benchmarking against, you know, what's good for Sunrun or something like that. I'm benchmarking against what's good for climate targets. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you. I'm, I'm The reason I'm pushing you a little bit is because... You know, we're talking about the physical world here, right? We're not talking about the percentage of people who download an app on their phone. <laughs> and so so part of what I'm trying to figure out is what I've argued for, you know, years on this podcast is that that solar and wind and the transition of the electricity system is the fastest transition we've ever benchmarked in history, right? From wood to coal to oil to gas. And so so we're actually on track to doing this far faster than any transition in energy, particularly in electricity, has ever been done. And the only way to go faster, in my opinion, is through a command and control um, situation, which kind of feels like a World War II Defense Policy Act type thing. Like, I don't see how private markets or some sort of policy is going to get us there short of, we're shutting all these perfectly good operating plants down right now. We're putting up all these other plants, and we're actually trampling on everybody that's in, in your way, right? Remember, we have cities and towns across the United States who don't want solar or wind in their communities, right? And so you'd go to them and say, well, I don't care what you think, because this is the great spot for transmission purposes. And so we're going to put it here, right? And I think short of that, I don't see how this goes far faster. I mean, whether it's China or Europe or, you know, India or other places, I don't know that there's other places around the world that have gone far faster than we have. Is that the standard that you're evaluating these policies against, Leah? That World War II mobilization standard? Yeah, I think that probably what we need is federal standards. What I mean is clean electricity standards and investment so that we 
do move faster. And I take Jakar's point. I actually think that um, nuclear deployment is faster than renewables deployment. There have been these papers showing how much clean electricity was built in, I think, Sweden and a bunch of other countries. And those are faster. Jesse Jenkins has the data on this. Um, But I take your point that we are moving relatively fast in the renewable space. And it's easy for me to say we need to move faster. Uh, What you might not know is that I've done a lot of work on NIMBYism. And in Ontario, Canada, they took that exact approach that Jigar was talking about. They uh, required local uh, cities to take wind projects that were uh, proposed, and they could not block them. And It did lead to a very large backlash against the government, and I document that in this article I wrote. It was a disaster. (laughs) Yeah, um, the government lost uh, 10% of uh, vote share in places where these wind turbines were operating within three kilometers of the turbines, and 5% uh, in places where they were proposed. So it was pretty bad in terms of vote share. Now, mind you, these wind turbines were not everywhere. So we're actually just talking about these local hotspots of anger and resentment. It's It ends up being about 6,000 people who were very pissed off across a province of 12 million people. So, but I do take the point that those things can catch fire. And I, I recently read Russell Gold's book, um, Superpower, which is excellent. And he gets into a lot of the challenges of building transmission lines, uh, issues around eminent domain and nimbyism. So I do think that where these problems arise as we move faster is with nimbyism. And we are going to need to think about community ownership, making sure that there's benefits flowing into local communities so that they actually want to build these things. And I totally take your point, Jigar, that when you say, I want 100% renewables by 2030, and you don't think about the physical world, it's really easy to imagine that. But when you look at historical deployment rates, when you look at the kind of transmission build out that would be necessary and the amount of land that would be used for wind and solar, especially if you take nuclear off the table, uh, yeah, I think it, it does run into really big problems. But the other thing that we run into big, big problems with is... Um, climate change. So we unfortunately, as fast as we've been moving, we probably have to move a lot faster. Can we name names? I mean, like when in your research, who are the most egregious utilities and what were their strategies? And Jigger, I, I know you probably would like to name names as well. I mean, you have both dealt with this in different ways. So who are the worst offenders? Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's play a game of like connect four. We each like put <laughs> A name and a thing and see who gets four across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What utilities are the worst or have been the worst and and are they as bad as they were? Yeah, that sounds fun. Um, so Arizona Public Service, I think, is has been one of the worst for a long time, actually. In my book, I talk about their long history of resisting clean uh, energy standards in that state. Now they have a new CEO. They're taking on all these new targets. They're claiming they're not going to dump money into elections anymore. They spent upwards of $50 million resisting clean energy over the past uh, decade, let's say. So, you know, maybe they'll become allies, but they certainly have been in the past. Um, Jigar, do you want to add another utility you don't like? (laughs) (laughs) Before you get there, I mean, we had an extensive show about Arizona Public Service earlier this year and the shift that they're going through right now under new leadership. And we have followed that saga, that political saga within the Arizona Corporation Commission and the amount of money that they're spending on dark elections. money. Yeah, dark money that they've funneled into elections, buying mm-hmm. ads to attack solar companies specifically. Uh, it was a really bad situation there. And that is all in my book, by the way. I have all the FBI drama. It's <laughs> but it feels to me like that APS switch is a pretty serious win. Oh, it's a huge win. But I think and there's other places as well, like Duke Energy, 
Like, remember, I mean, for all the solar in North Carolina, that's a policy thing, right? Duke told regulators that once renewables hit 3%, that they were actually going to have rolling blackouts in the state. And uh, they have, you know, allowed for all sorts of unhealthy practices with their coal fly ash ponds and um, have asked for energy efficiency to get reimbursed at the rate of a the equivalent uh, natural gas peaker plant, which have been like an 80% rate of return uh, for the utility if they had gotten that. Um, you know, and then TVA, you know, was highlighted very carefully in Russell Gold's book around, um, you know, all of their bad practices. I remember working closely with TVA when they had this subsidy program for solar and um, they were they write these sort of five-year plans, you know, which are similar to an IRP. And, um, and the... Uh, the number one set of comments they got from 65,000 people was that they didn't have enough renewables in it. And they summarily decided not to do anything about it and not to add any additional renewables and to screw Russell, you know, and screw uh, our good friend Mike Skelly and and his company to make sure that no wind power got into the state. So um, there's certainly a lot of bad practices to go around from utility to utility. Um and, you know, and there's there's definitely some folks who've made a, you know, turnaround. Okay, who else? Yeah, I feel like we got we to gotta name another one, which is First Energy yeah. mm. and First Energy Solutions, now Energy Harbor. I mean, they just mm. rebrand so fast, it's hard to keep track of their name, but they're bad all along the way. Um, between them and AEP, another terrible company, uh, they have secured, I, I estimated in my book, they got this really big bailout for a couple coal plants that lose money from operating. And, you know, it's not like the electricity markets, even when they are sending economic signals necessarily work, because in Ohio, these plants are going to stay open, even though they lose money every single time they produce a kilowatt hour. Uh, And I estimate that that subsidy could be as much as $5 billion to keep those coal plants open. And what's even crazier is that when First Energy Solutions, now Energy Harbor, got that money, they said, oh, well, I know you gave us this money to keep these uh, nuclear plants open, but oh my gosh, we're doing so much better from a capitalization perspective now that we're going to be able to keep the Samus coal plant open too. Isn't that awesome? So (laughs) it's really quite terrible. Um, They have completely captured the Ohio legislature and have been uh, making really bad decisions that literally lead to terrible air pollution, early deaths for people living in Ohio, and jack up the rates that people are paying for their electricity. I think we need to get more specific on this front. So, Jigger, give us a, like the brief history of First Energy because they have been a, 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 an opponent for a long time. And then I want to talk about the Ohio policy, which is like a really important story. Well, I mean, you know, First Energy is a utility company in um, in Ohio, and they, um, I think, they own JCPNL as well, right, in New Jersey. So they had some early roots of you know showing their true colors when you know they were running JCPL in New Jersey. Remember, New Jersey had their first renewable portfolio standard back in two thousand and three, and was pushing a lot of renewable energy back then. And so it was always harder to work with JCPNL. Um, and you know, and I think when you think about what happened back in Ohio, First Energy basically decided they were not going to 
comply with any of the laws of economics or physics or other, you know, laws that are supposed to be permanent. And so they decided to take the worst plants that they had from coal plants to nuclear plants to others and try to to run them as badly as could possibly be run in the history of time. And so even in good days, they lost money on these plants. And after the 2008 financial crisis, um, the premium prices that were being paid in the PJM cratered, right? The PJM actually had all sorts of transmission distribution um, challenges because of power demand. And all of them magically went away after the 2008 financial crisis. People had shifted load, etc. And ever since that time, all the capacity auctions in the PJM basically, you know, didn't include First Energy's facilities. Um, And so what ended up happening is First Energy just kept losing money on these plants, and they were the most expensive plants in the marketplace. So they kept losing bids, and you kept getting more clean natural gas that got installed. I mean, frankly, the people who lost in Ohio in this latest bill, which we can go through, was a natural gas industry. It wasn't um, the renewable energy industry. Like, they've got so much cheap gas in the Marcellus right next to Ohio, and actually, it borders into Ohio, that they actually could produce power for dirt cheap because the gas actually doesn't have anywhere to go because there's not enough pipeline capacity to, to evacuate it from the Marcellus. So, like, so First Energy really was was fighting natural gas more than it was fighting renewables. And then what happened in Ohio recently, Leah? This is one of the worst contemporary stories in uh, state politics around clean energy. Yeah, it's a sad story. So uh, about a decade ago, uh, a bill passed the legislature that had both a renewable portfolio standard and an energy efficiency standard. And actually, it passed on Earth Day and was um, led by a Republican. So it was a bipartisan bill. The uh, energy efficiency standard saved people a lot of money in the state. And the renewable portfolio standard just got attacked endlessly, and the state never really gained much of a foothold in renewables, in part because in addition to the direct attacks on rolling back the policy, they also got um, a rider attached to a budget bill, I believe back in 2014, that changed the setback rules for wind turbines and made it such that it would be basically impossible to have built any of the wind projects that already existed in the state and made it very impossible to build new ones going forward. And, you know, Governor John Kasich could have line item vetoed that decision, and he didn't. And the wind industry in the state has ground to a complete standstill. You, it's basically impossible to build a wind project in Ohio right now. Um, so then they just kept attacking this law and Back uh, last year in the summer, they finally uh, passed a bill that rolled back the renewable portfolio standard, rolled back the energy efficiency law, got rid of any requirement to build solar in the state, and then gave a very big bailout to a lot of the bad decisions that Jigar was talking about. You know, we have this ideal that somehow companies should be run well and should be rewarded for good management. But even when you have an electricity market operating as it does in Ohio, we are still seeing terrible decisions happening to bail out bad companies that have made really bad investments. And in part, what happened was that First Energy went through bankruptcy. That's why they became First Energy Solutions. And there were um, these 
people holding all that money and saying, you know, we want, they, they bought the company when it was in dire straits and they said, we want to make our money back. So they put a lot of money into making sure that Larry Householder won, um, his election to become the head of the chamber and to make sure that this bailout could be put on the agenda. And they ended up getting billions of dollars to keep these really terrible coal plants open um, that make no sense economically and literally kill people in Ohio through air pollution. Can I just, one thing I would add to that is when we talk about a lot of money, they initially put $200,000 into Larry Householder. So it wasn't a lot of money. And then it was another couple hundred thousand dollars that he sprinkled around to key people's races for re-election and whatnot to be able to get them on side and so that he could win the speakership, right? Because he, he had someone who was going against him in the speaker position. I mean, it's one of the things that the clean energy industry does um, – off and on, but generally more poorly than the fossil fuel industry is we just don't spread the money around as much. Yeah, and I take your point that maybe to some people $200,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but you have to remember these are state races, right? These aren't. This is not for Congress or for president or something like that. And uh, it totally makes sense as a return on investment for the company. And I think that's exactly what they were thinking. They said, if we can get this guy elected because we not only back him in his race, but all the people who say they're going to vote for him, then that very small investment will give us huge returns in terms of the bills that he goes and passes for us. So I take your point, Jigar, that in terms of an investment, it doesn't seem like much. And yes, the renewable energy industry has not been as politically savvy and has not invested as much in these races. In uh, Kansas, the Wind Coalition fielded a PAC, and they did a pretty good job defending Republicans that were pro-renewables. Uh, but they were being um, you know, outspent by Coke Industries, the Kansas Chamber of Commerce, um, other right-wing groups in that state. So... Yeah, I take your point that it may not seem like a lot of money, but within the context of state races, that's not small spending. Well, I mean it the other way around, right? So then the question is like, could we could we reverse course in some of these states for a million dollars? Right, a million dollars is nothing compared to you know putting in an extra two billion dollars with the clean energy projects. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think that Tom Steyer um, through NextGen had been trying to do a little bit of that work. You know, he was the one who backed that ballot initiative in uh, Arizona, which APS then spent $40 million opposing. So, um, yeah, I think that one one argument that I make in the book is that renewable energy companies and clean energy advocates, environmental groups, need to be spending more money politically. And that if they're smart, you're right, they can probably leverage a relatively small amount of money to get big outcomes uh, from a policy perspective. So let's talk about where things stand today. Ohio is a cautionary story, but it seems to be an outlier at this point. When we see announcements coming out of states, it's for fairly ambitious policy, uh, some kind of carbon-free target or renewable energy target that is far beyond what we thought we would be getting five years ago, uh, or it is some kind of compromise like we saw in Illinois or New York or New Jersey to keep nuclear power plants operating in exchange for some kind of renewable energy promotion policy. The momentum feels real. Um, what does the resistance look like? Has it shifted? Have utilities shifted their tactics? You wrote that they've gone from denial to delay. Um, how is that kind of holding up given today's policy momentum that it feels like we're experiencing? 
It's so easy to focus on the happy stories, and maybe it's uh, my own psychology that I'm very effective at not just focusing on all the happy stories. So I take your point, and look, I want momentum, I want climate action, but I just uh, don't want to be naive, I guess, and I keep focusing on the bigger picture, which is what's happening in West Virginia, what's happening in Florida. Um, You know, we've got a lot of states that only have literally a couple percent renewables. That includes places like Ohio, uh, Delaware, Um, Even Florida just has 15% clean electricity. So a lot of places are not where they need to be. Um, But, you know, I take your point that there are some momentum in in some places. And I do think that utilities uh, in some places have shifted their strategy. If you look at Excel in Colorado um, and the rest of its service territory in other states, if you look at Tri-State, which has been under a lot of pressure to change uh, its policies and has made big announcements to shut down coal plants, or if you look at New Mexico, um, there's been big announcements by PNM. Unfortunately, though, a lot of utilities are still proposing a lot of new gas infrastructure. And there, are, I have concerns about how long will that gas infrastructure operate? Therefore, how easy will it be to be paid back and make returns? And will we end up with a lot of other stranded costs in the same way that we have had for coal infrastructure? So, you know, I think it's kind of one step forward, one step back. And unfortunately, utilities are using some fairly nefarious strategies. So the story of Entergy, which I only touch on briefly in the book, but has been reported on really well in the nation. This is a utility that wanted to build a gas plant and went to, I think it was the New Orleans um, City Council, and they paid actors to show up. They didn't spend that much money to go back to Jigar's point. It was $25,000, but they sp- they paid people to show up and pretend that they really liked gas and they really didn't like renewables. And had there not been a journalist there asking questions to these people saying, why are you here? And why do you have this view? It could have been the case that these things went um, unnoticed. And that kind of astroturfing um, strategy, I think is being used a lot within the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities to delay progress. Yeah, I know. Look, I agree with you. And, you know, it's why I, I think, have allowed myself to be called the, you know, sort of most negative person on podcasting on, uh, on utilities. I don't think I've ever given <laughs> a em- lot of people hate listen to this show just so they can get <laughs> angry listening to you, Jigger. <laughs> I, I have many a rant, I think, that are even on YouTube about utility companies. So, you know, you know that there's no love lost. And even our good friend Jill Anderson over at Southern California Edison mentioned my normal hatred for utilities in her LinkedIn post on our podcast. Um, So like, I mean, so I, I don't love the utilities, but I do think that I do think we have them pretty well cornered. I mean, and that's, that's part of why I'm pushing back a little bit. I think the way that your book documents what has occurred is hugely helpful and very important for people to read. So I I downloaded my Kindle version and paid for it because I think people should get compensated for their writing. But I also think that that we're winning in ways that are slow and then fast, right? I mean, I think that we, many of us think, oh, you know, this should be a linear progression towards 100% decarbonization. And I just think that that's not how it works. And I think you know that. I think that, you know, you basically keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. And then a new CEO Kim comes in at APS or Consumers Energy or some of these other places. And they're like, well, crap, we're going to have to just change this whole place around. And and I think you see that with Patty Poppy over in um, 
you know, in consumers energy, you know, and, and I, I guess I just, I guess I would just say that my own sense of it all is that, um, that we have a lot more work to do, right? We have to continue to fight every day. And, you know, I agree with you on the journalism point with Entergy. I do think that, you know, we need to give more money to local journalism because those are the folks who find these things out. Do you remember that story about, uh, it was, I think it was a guy in Georgia, but he basically uncovered a story where one of the local co-ops was basically giving themselves perennial pay increases at the board level because no one would show up to the board meetings and they would just not. So it was like their family members that would come in and vote. And he exposed the whole thing and then everyone just got like, you know, thrown out of office. It was like throw the bums out. So I do think that, you know, that what they're doing is nefarious and when people report on it, whether it's in you know, newspapers or whether it's in your book, you know, people are very embarrassed by their actions and we then make even more progress. Um, so I, I tend to believe that we're actually really headed in the right direction. And I do think we're going to have major step changes in the right direction through these 100% clean energy goals. But I'm not, but I don't disagree with you that some of this stuff is really just, you know, trying to change the narrative. Like when Shell's CEO today said, we're committed to a 100% clean energy goal. Oh, really? You know, what are you doing next week for me? Nothing. So, you know, I do think that some of these 100% clean energy by 2050 goals are really just press releases to get people off their Mm -hmm. back. Yeah. I don't even necessarily think it's to get people off their back. I think they truly believe in it, but it's part of a bigger problem within big corporations. It's not necessarily utilities. So I want to argue my theory, my brief theory of the case. I think historically speaking, utilities have been very resistant to these policies and they've used tactics like you've described to try to cut them down or water them down. Like that's very clear. But today it doesn't feel like it's necessarily this direct political resistance. It's a problem with internal management. So, you know, over the years I have collected a lot of colleagues and and then therefore friends who work with inside utilities, mm-hmm. working within their innovation groups, working in their renewable energy groups, doing the stuff that, that they deem innovative. And it's so hard for them to get the attention of executives. It's hard to sell certain areas of the business or the company is so large that it's very difficult for them to make decisions and make long-term investments around the new innovative clean technologies. And so part of it is just like a a corporate behemoth problem that a lot of big companies are facing right now when trying to deal with competitive threats. They can't move fast enough. They're often tripping over themselves. And so I agree with your thesis historically, but today it feels to me more like a corporate management problem than it is direct political resistance. Yeah, well... I look, I'd be happy to be wrong. I didn't set out to write this book in the way that I did. It was from the research and uh, from an assessment of what's going on. And I would be happy to be wrong because then we would be in a better place in terms of solving the climate crisis. So that's fine. Um, You know, I think that a lot of utilities sunk uh, good money after bad or bad money after good, whatever the right phrase is, into their coal plants. And particularly around the mercury air toxic standard, they had to decide if they were going to shut down plants or they were going to retrofit them, put scrubbers on them. And a lot of uh, utilities decided to keep them open. And so now they're, they have all these stranded, um, they have debt in these plants and they don't really know what they're going to do. Are they going to shut them down? Or are they going to keep them operating? And so I think that... Uh, 
that is a big problem. And then the other big problem is if they keep building natural gas infrastructure, that could just layer over this coal plant issue. So I am hopeful about developments like in New Mexico, where utilities are being brought to the table and are saying, yeah, we will retire this infrastructure in a timely fashion. But then I'm very not hopeful when I look at cases like Ohio, where they say, not only you know, are we going to take your subsidies, we're going to keep these coal plants open. And particularly if you look at the entire southeast, there are these really interesting maps that people do where they show uh, that you could build a wind project or a solar project right now and it would be cheaper than keeping these coal plants open. And these are utilities like Southern Company or Duke. They don't, they're not in a electricity market generally, they're not facing competitive pressure. And so they just keep these coal plants operating longer than is necessary from an economic perspective, obviously from a health perspective when it comes to air pollution, and then from a climate perspective. So uh, I guess I'd like to see coal plants retiring faster. And if I were to see that, like we're seeing with Tri-State, for example, then I would begin to believe the hype a little bit more. Yeah, no, look, I think the hype is real i think that you know we catherine and i have had this the hype, weird the hype what hype i mean the hype around progress yeah around progress yeah that the utility companies claim more progress than they're actually willing to make or have made i look i think that in general like catherine and i have had this road show where we got you know sort of hired by consumers to you know keynote their leadership meeting and then national grid and I mean, it's always the same old story. And it's funny because like the CEO would get on stage and say, oh, yeah, we care about non-wires alternatives and we care about all these other things. And then then when you actually like sit around and listen to his speech, like right before our session or right after, it's like we need to rate base more stuff. And like and, and you see that with transmission as well, like, you know, companies like Smart Wires or others are working in Canada, which is actually the same grid as our grid. It's connected. Mm-hmm. Right. And. Everything happens really fast, whereas here, everybody wants to work with them, but it's like three years of pilot, and maybe they might do it. And the reason is because they're reconductoring everything, and that costs six times more, and they get to rate base it, right? And it, it does feel to me like they're basically saying, we have about seven or eight more years to pile on a bunch of lard onto our ratepayers, and then the gig will be up, and then we'll change. But like, you know, but don't stop this gravy train until we get all the rest of this crap through our regulators because they're too weak to stop us right now. But they won't be in like six or seven years. The crazy thing is, why don't these utilities see electrification of buildings and transportation and the huge growth in the uh, sector that's necessary? I mean, there are reports out of... I think they're getting there. They are, but... No, they've lost their way. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like what they've gotten there with is like, hey, this is another thing we can rate base. Let's rate base $300 million <laughs> with the EV infrastructure. <laughs> but do they actually have effective policies that that get people to buy EVs? Hell no. Or to right? retrofit and, and their homes and electrify them? Or no. retrofit their homes or no, none of it, right? And it's one of those things where, so we're doing it from outside, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of the companies that we're supporting are actually going to the regulators and saying, we have this great business model. It'll increase EV sales by 10x. The utilities won't do this for us. We need you to mandate the them to do it and then they do and you know and the same thing's true i think we're going to get natural gas utilities the ability to to rate base um, electrification because that's how you save the gas utilities is by giving them something else to rate base and so but unfortunately i don't think they're going to come to the table and do it i think we're going to get it mandated upon them by the regulator and it's it's sad because when you take these folks out for a beer they all totally agree with you 
But then when you actually do battle with them in front of the regulator, they got to take the other side. So, Leah, I can tell that you don't you, 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 you feel, you know, skeptical, if not cynical about where we're headed relative to where we need to be. Right. It depends on your baseline. And, um, you know, you have a very high standard for where we need to go, uh, as as you should. Uh, <laughs> no argument <laughs> from me there. Um, but I'm wondering if anything in your research gave you positivity. I mean, did you go from skeptical to positive as you researched this book, or did you just generally stay in a skeptical, cynical place? Um, well, I think it's just being somebody in my early 30s, looking at my lifetime. I, I'm a huge gardener. I have all these fruit trees, and I live in Southern California where the fire risk is brutal, where climate projections say we could be facing um, desertification by mid-century. You know, I just look at my own lifetime and I think, hey, what do we actually need to do so that my tree that I'm planting can live for decades? And uh, we need to move faster for that tree to not burn down. That's how I feel. And for and to not die in drought and desertification. So my standards are not really about um, trying to be cynical. It's more about thinking about the lifetime of young people and what kind of world we'll be inheriting and just how critical the electricity system is. I really feel that the U.S. electricity system is the first linchpin. If we can get this done, then we can electrify transportation, we can electrify buildings. That actually gets us 70% of the way there in terms of cleaning up our carbon emissions. So, um, so that makes me feel hopeful and it makes me feel like there could be a lot of jobs and a lot of work for people. If I generally feel like if we actually tried we could do this. And so that makes me feel hopeful for sure. Um, and the other thing I'll say is California, where I live, is a really great state in terms of making progress. They have a 100% target. And they also have this policy called the Intervenor Compensation Program, which basically pays advocates to show up and do battle with utilities, provide another point of view in public utility commissions. And I'm really keen on that policy. It costs uh, every person living in California about 17 cents a year. That's not a lot of money, and it returns hundreds of millions of dollars back to ratepayers in terms of keeping customer bills low, not to mention all the climate and air quality benefits from it. So, you know, I think that there are ways that we can make our system work better, and I guess my high standards are for all living beings to really uh, make sure that we have a stable climate so that we can continue to, you know, enjoy the United States and have a prosperous economy for all. All right. Well, the book is Short Circuiting Policy. It just came out. You can uh, check it out through the link in our show notes there. It is the result of seven years of research and a really fascinating, very deeply researched complement to the kinds of conversations we've been having on this show since 2013. A quick note before we continue, this podcast is brought to you by Power. How have the recent wildfires in California affected the Golden State's drive for clean, renewable energy? What did Texas learn from an August that featured the state's first demand response events in almost five years? How is New York faring in meeting the lofty renewable ambitions of the reforming energy vision? Well, you don't have a crystal ball, but you can follow the data and experience and that's why CPower is here to help with the 2020 State of Demand Side Energy Management in North America. Last year, 2,000 organizations downloaded this insightful book by CPower's energy experts. This year, CPower picks up where they left off with a market by market analysis of the issues, trends, and regulations that organizations like yours should understand going into 2020 and beyond. Get your copy today at the cpowerway.com/slash future. 
Okay, so we turn now to the 2020 presidential race. Leah, over the months, has categorized the policy positions of all the candidates. And now we are down to one candidate, and that is Joe Biden. A lot of folks in the climate community who are pretty progressive on these issues are not so happy. Um, So what's going to happen now with uh, Senator Sanders supporters, especially those in the climate movement, uh, the youth movement who were just so enthusiastic about his candidacy. The Sunrise Movement gave Joe Biden an F on its climate report card. So will they still go to the polls in November and vote for Biden? Are they going to come around on the issue? Many of them are holding out. They're expressing their displeasure with Joe Biden. Um, So Biden has a $1.7 trillion climate plan. It includes 30 times the clean energy commitment in Hillary Clinton's 2016 platform. But it certainly doesn't match the amount of spending that Sanders was proposing. So, Leah, what's going on here? Why these holdouts? Why are a lot of the groups, particularly Sunrise and, you know, the, the, the bigger umbrella group of the Democratic Socialists, why are they saying either they're holding out or they're specifically not endorsing Biden? Well, Sunrise has not said that they're not endorsing Biden yet. Some of their chapters have said that. Um, the Democratic Socialists of America have said that they're not endorsing Joe Biden, although some people have clarified that the DSA generally does not endorse very much and so that it doesn't mean much. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people are grieving. They put big hopes in Bernie Sanders. Bernie talked a lot about climate change. And a lot of young people just feel deep fear and anxiety around climate change. So I can understand why they might feel, you know, that they need some time. I do think that ultimately this uh, is a really important election. And I support Joe Biden fully because I think we have got to get the climate denier in chief, namely Donald Trump, out of the White House. And I think that a lot of uh, the young people in the youth climate movement will Uh, with time, come to see that there is a very big difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on climate policy. So I was really dismayed when I saw the lack of, you know, the youth climate strike and Sunrise Movement come out in in support of Biden, just because of what you said. Uh, You know, we, we need to mobilize every resource we have in getting Trump out of office. I mean, he truly is a menace to the environment in a way that we've really never seen before. Um, but but I thought about it more and I, I understand why it is that they're holding out. I mean, they want to push him as far as they can as late in the race as possible. And it certainly makes sense. And then hopefully they can come around and mobilize their supporters. I mean, I just wonder if, you know, when they pull the trigger, if the timing is correct and they can make people enthusiastic to go to the polls. But I get it why they're doing it now. The question is, if they do endorse or at least mobilize their supporters against Trump, when they do it, will it be effective enough? And so I think that's the big unknown for me. No, they don't matter. So it doesn't, what do you mean? It doesn't matter. I mean, remember, the, <laughs> why reason, don't they matter? the reason Bernie Sanders isn't the presidential nominee is because they didn't turn out enough youth vote. Like, it's not like... Bernie Sanders didn't have a lot of excitement by his campaign. He just had excitement by his campaign with people who don't turn out to the polls and vote. And so he ended up not winning the election, right, or the the primaries, which is fine, whatever. Like, young people haven't voted for a century. So it's not like, you know, Sunrise is uniquely unqualified to turn out the vote. My point is simply that, like, 
But even for people who self-identified climate as their number one issue, Joe Biden won those people in the primary. So I, I just think that we just need to like stop talking about Sunrise. I think Sunrise has their place, which is to get AOC to say a lot of great things and then to like craft policy at the federal level. But the notion that they're like this turnout machine for for folks to get elected is not right, right? I mean, Joe Biden is going to win the presidency because people hate Trump, not because they love Joe Biden, right? Like at the end of the day, when you look at like Rachel Bitcoffer's work and some of the other work that's out there, the, the negatives on Trump are so high that that's why people are going to the polls. Now the question is, is that like, who is advising Joe Biden? And are we going to get a return to the sort of all the above stuff from 2008 or is he going to stick to his $1.7 trillion plan and then take it further, right? And I think that's that's what we need to focus on is, is figuring out how do we actually make the case to Joe Biden and his team that we are by far the best stimulus bill this country has to offer out of COVID and how to get him to say that out of his mouth as opposed to what he probably is saying. So I agree with you that the Sunrise Movement hasn't proven to be a mobilizing voting force, but certainly they have played a very strong role in pushing climate in this election and pushing a lot of the candidates to be more ambitious in the way that they talk about this. And certainly they see their role as pushing Biden as we get into the general election. And they've done a pretty good job of that. The, the, the youth climate movement generally has been effective in changing the nature of the conversation within the global climate talks, within the presidential race, is absolutely been a huge impact. Yeah, we've talked about whether it. that becomes a mobilizing force. Right, right. So, so but I, I don't think you, you know you you were being somewhat incendiary and in saying that they were a failure. I don't care who they endorse. I don't think they're going to change a single vote in the country by endorsing. I think the vast majority of these young people are probably pro-choice, and they're probably you know like pro you know like getting to normal on immigration. And they're probably like for not screwing around with, you know, illegal immigrants. And they're going to vote for the person who probably is for those issues. And so like, my point is that on the politics side, people have to rally around Joe Biden because he's a better choice than Trump is. Right. But separately, we have to push Joe Biden to actually believe what Leah believes in her book. Right. Like, ultimately, my sense is, is that that Joe Biden is going to lead us to like a place where in his natural state where we're moving too slowly. Right. And I think we're going to have to push him and his advisors, who are largely the same ones who, you know, wrote Obama's all the above strategy to be more bold. Yeah, I think that we are going to need um, more boldness from the entire Democratic Party. Uh, and, you know, there are some encouraging things about Biden. I think he really cares about infrastructure. He really cares about good paying jobs. And I do feel that selling the idea of climate as the key issue for a stimulus package would be something that he's open to and his advisors are open to. You know, people like to talk about, uh, and this is in Russell Gold's book too, when Obama was uh, doing the transition team and they started to plan and they said, well, maybe we should do transmission. And they chose not to because it couldn't be done fast enough. And when we look back on that moment, 
it seems like such a terrible decision because if we had had a transmission investment then, imagine how much farther along we would be in terms of interconnecting renewables across the country. Um, so maybe this time they will invest in transmission. Maybe they'll do massive build out of EV charging infrastructure, which is something he really likes to talk about. Now, those things are not enough. The number one thing I would like the Biden campaign to take on is a clean electricity standard. They only have a 2050 target. They've never been really clear about the electricity component to that. And so, you know, what are we going to do? Is that going to be the top of the agenda? Because uh, I really think it needs to be. And I think it's quite compatible with the plans that they've already put forward. Do you think that Biden will adopt all or parts of the Inslee climate plan? I do think that the Biden campaign is open to uh, the work of the Inslee campaign, which is now um, the Evergreen Alliance, I believe it's called. And I'm on. They got a lot of press, actually, far more than I thought they would. (laughs) Well, you know, Jigar, I'm one of their advisors, so I'm a really big deal. (laughs) So are they. Um, You know, what I love about. Well, but their website, I don't think, is getting launched for two weeks. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, they're trying to be tactful about the coronavirus and everything. Um, You know, what I love about those guys, that's Maggie Thomas, who worked on the Warren campaign, and uh, Bracken Hendricks and Sam Ricketts um, and the rest of the team, is they're really into the details. They're into the weeds. And the Biden campaign, I think, intentionally wasn't actually into all the details because they viewed it as an electoral um you know, liability that people could be running against them on things during the general. And, you know, that's a legitimate choice. But when it comes time to governing, we're going to need to have detailed plans. And I do feel that the Inslee team has been doing the hard work to flesh that out. So Jigger made his case for the role of these groups. If we think about, you know, Sunrise, Zero Hour, Youth Climate Strike, what role do they play going into the general election? Where, where do you think they'll have the most influence and will the Biden Biden campaign respond? I think that young people have a lot of moral authority on the climate issue. I think that they're extremely good messengers because um, people can understand the stakes when these people speak about the climate crisis. So, um, you know, I think that getting back to that core messaging is really important. And I, I'm a little bit more positive about their ability to play a role in turnout. I mean, we don't know what that's going to look like. But the fact is that uh, Sunrise and other groups did an enormous amount of phone banking for the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think they did help with turnout. Um, It's hard to know the counterfactuals, obviously. But I think that having youth energy behind any campaign is important because these are the kinds of people who will volunteer time to try to get people to turn out. They don't necessarily have the money, but they do have a lot of time and passion. And so I'm hopeful that, um, you know, that a lot of these youth climate strikers will come to see that Donald Trump is a huge threat to climate progress. And though Joe Biden may not be their favorite, maybe the campaign can adopt some ideas from Bernie Sanders, from Elizabeth Warren, from Jay Inslee, and uh, start to prioritize the issue more. I think these groups know that they have a lot more power. They have a significant amount of power under a Biden administration. I mean, when it comes to actual policymaking, and if Biden is in the White House, these groups will have a substantial voice. Yeah, I don't know. I think my sense is, is that, um, you know, when you go back to Leah's book, like, I think the clean energy entrepreneurs are going to have to open up their wallets. They're going to have to write some big checks to Joe Biden. And they're going to have to say, look, we want our policies in these stimulus bills. Because, you know, Joe Biden actually does have an ability to impact how these stimulus bills are drafted over the next, you know, two to three months. And, 
his voice has been absent, right? And, you know, right now we're not in a good place, right? I don't think Nancy Pelosi has the 1603 grant program, like, you know, on her list of eight or nine things to get passed. And so, you know, I think we need, you know, folks to write big checks is probably where I think this is going to come from, right? Joe Biden's a classic politician from a classic era and, you know, checks talk. And my sense is our clean energy compatriots, as we talked about in Ohio, don't write big checks. And so, If we want to get done what we want to get done and we want $2 trillion to be spent to revolutionize the economy, then I think folks got to open up their checkbooks. I take that point, Jigar. And I know that the Biden campaign is starting to do fundraisers that are sort of climate and clean energy focused. And I think you're right that uh, the industry has got to support him because that will matter when it comes time to governing. In my own research, I show that campaign donors, um, you know, their voices and opinions get heard more. And there's lots of political science research that shows that, unfortunately. Um, But that is how the system works. And I think it's how the system works under this politician. And so I do think that people do need to donate to his campaign. Well, I know you have a book launch to get to shortly. Are you going to get as wonky as we did here? No, I think that they'll be nicer and just say how wonderful my book was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a fantastic book. And again, you can go check it out in our show notes. It's called Short Circuiting Policy. Dr. Leah Stokes is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thanks, Leah. Thanks so much for having me on. And all jokes aside, this was my favorite conversation so far about my book. So thanks so much for uh, digging into it. It means a lot. Our pleasure to be your first conversation about your book. Uh, and Jigger Shaw is our regular co-host and the president of Generate Capital. Catherine will be back with us next week when we do our live show. Follow the link in the show notes to sign up. I think we have a 1,500-person limit. You can watch us record this show in real time from our homes. So we'll all be in our homes together. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Uh, for any suggested Uh, show topics just hit us up on twitter or send an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com be sure to give us a rating and review on apple Podcasts or stitcher it does help people find the show we really appreciate you being with us through this madness stay calm stay safe stay sane and we will be with you next week thanks for joining us